So let's uh, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will talk to about uh, what we're getting into today. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, grateful that we get to talk about uh, our God. Grateful that uh, even today we get to talk about our Holy Spirit. Uh, we pray for wisdom. Pray for the work of the Holy Spirit that we might understand Him better. Uh, we ask for. Uh, blessing over today as we worship you, that we will be able to do it uh, both in spirit and in truth. I ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, last week uh, we talked about the Holy Spirit and his deity, that he is God. Uh, not a part of God, not uh, involved in God, but is God. And uh, today we are going to talk about the Holy Spirit as a person, which is interesting. Um, often we talk about the Spirit's work. We talk about the Spirit in the sense of the way we talk about our own spirit. Um, it is difficult to divorce ourselves um, from a creaturely way of understanding our God. Uh, so we often think of ourselves in parts, right? There's a part of us that is spirit, a part of us that is body. Uh, we have a mind. We even have a brain. How does all that work? There's lots of philosophers that have tried to figure it out. But what uh, the danger is that we apply this then to God. Um, and we tend to think of God mainly as the Father... Maybe as the father and son, but then we understand maybe there's this force or this power that they have that we call the Holy Spirit. What we want to do today is try to understand that Scripture does not speak of the Holy Spirit as a power or a force, but as a person. And that will be uh, important. There are ramifications to that. So... Very quickly, I'm just going to run through a few uh, passages. Uh, 2 Samuel 23, 3. We're going to look at Ezekiel 2, 2, John 16, and Romans 8. We're just going to run through those very quickly to establish something very simple. So in 2 Samuel 23, 2, it reads this way. Um, this is, uh, these are the words of David son of Jesse, and he declares this. Um, in verse 2, he says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke, spoke uh, by me, and his word was on my tongue. So the Spirit of the Lord, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and he refers to him with a pronoun, and his word was on my tongue. So uh, he's not saying its word, uh, but his word. So we have, uh, we can put it one way, a gender there. Now what's important about that is spirit. Um, I want to talk quickly and very quickly about this. Uh, ruah is the Hebrew for spirit. And it is... Uh, how many have studied different languages? Anybody? I see those hands. Yes. Good. 
It probably wasn't a pleasant experience. It wasn't for me. But one thing you learn about studying other languages is that other languages have genders attached to different words. These genders don't mean that the word is actually a girl. Do you understand what I'm saying? Or the word is actually a boy. Uh, there are certain rules, we call them gender rules. Um, these, the word gender is actually a language word. It's not a word that was supposed to be applied to humans. But we have, because that's the world we live in. Um, humans have a sex, right? A male sex or a female sex. Uh, we have taken the word gender that was meant for language and applied it to humans, and I think there's a lot of confusion over that. So when there is a word that has a female gender, we tend to make a lot of that when it's not really, logically it doesn't make any sense to do that. Uh, some of the more liberal uh, theologians think it's interesting that ruha is female in its gender uh, as a word, ruha being spirit. They try to make some kind of uh, hay out of that. And there really is no hay because it doesn't apply to personhood, it applies to language. What applies to personhood is pronouns. Are you a her or a him? Then we're talking about how we understand your sex. Okay. So when we come to ruha, it is a word that in the language itself has some kind of uh, female gender because that's the way spirit is spoken of. It's breath. Uh, the word breath is, uh, in Hebrew language, is spoken of that way. But we look at the pronoun and it says, his word is on my tongue. There. I hope that helps us for when you come across a liberal that says, you know, Holy Spirit is a woman. Um, because I kid you not, that is an argument. It's a weird argument if you have any knowledge of language, but some people want to hold to it. Um, so, Ezekiel 2.2 does the same thing. Um, uh, he, speaking of um, the Spirit, he spoke to me, the Spirit, um, as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Uh, if we look at John 16, as we enter into the New Testament, same God, different Testament. John 16, 13 says this, But when he, comma, the spirit of truth comes, right? We all understand English, positives. The uh, little, the little commas there that give us qualification of who we're talking about. Um, but when he, comma, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own uh, initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. 
speaking of the Holy Spirit. And the same thing happens in Romans 8.26. So what do we learn from uh, these pronouns used concerning the Holy Spirit? Uh, First of all, um, this demonstrates a person. Because persons are understood uh, in terms of male and female. And this also means that who had personhood before humans do? Uh, It's God, right? God is a person, and we mimic that in our own creatureliness. And the Holy Spirit is a person. So I want you to notice that the original, this is your first blank here, original personhood is not embodied. So a body is not the thing that defines personhood. Doesn't define it. Being a person is not defined by having a body because the person that originated personhood uh, does not have a body. Yes, the son took on a body, but he existed way before that body that he took on. Right? And the Holy Spirit is the same way. Incidentally, what does this mean about our arguments about uh, abortion, by the way? Just to throw this in. It is a ridiculous statement to say, well, uh, we should... We should uh, Oftentimes, uh, I hear Christians talking about when the brain is formed and when the baby starts feeling pain. And they use these arguments to argue for uh, personhood of the child. Um, Those are the arguments of people that believe um, in something that this philosopher came up with named Satra. Or as we Americans say, Sartre. Uh, So this guy named Sartre came up with this idea that your existence is first, then comes your essence, what you are. And we Christians have kind of jumped on that and said, yeah, that's right. So we start arguing about the existence of a baby long before its essence, what it is. And uh, we think we're arguing well when all we're really doing is taking on their argument. Existence does not come first. Uh, God is very clear that before the creation of the world, before God said, let there be anything, um, he knew you. He knew you. Even the language of before I formed you in your mother's womb. Yeah. The knowing. The knowing is already there. So let us be careful about uh, what we're, how we're arguing when it comes to abortion. But even more importantly, it should remind us how ugly abortion is. Um, it is fascinating to me. Um, since I'm still cynical about politicians having souls, I don't really have a position on how much I like one over the other. 
but when they do what I want, I will vote for them. Does that make sense? Um, it is interesting to me how little ire came from the Christian community when Barack Obama came into uh, power and began to immediately undo all the stuff that George W. Bush did when it came to abortion. George W. Bush had this weird idea that if you botch an abortion and the baby is still alive, you shouldn't put a living baby in a, in a garbage bag for it to die. He thought that you should you know, keep it alive. Uh, Barack Obama didn't feel that way, so when Barack Obama came into power, he got rid of that law as fast as he could, which is why New York is where it is now. Um, but I just didn't hear a lot of people getting upset, upset over that. Uh, anyway, my point is, we should be reminded uh, that this should bother us as Christians. Uh, more than the arrogance of a, of a politician, we should be angry over the fact that everyone keeps ignoring this situation. There's a genocide going on. And uh, we just don't seem to... That doesn't seem to bother us as much as personalities do. Anyway. Um, here's another thing for your, uh, for your blank. Your next blank there. Original masculinity is not embodied. Uh, God really is male. What does that mean? means the maleness that we have as creatures, we males as creatures, um, is a mimicking. But original masculinity lies with our God. And it's not embodied. Which means um, there are ways to embody your masculinity as a man. But manliness doesn't come down to grip strength. Does that make sense? Um, there, is a, there is a movement, I think, going on right now that is frustrated with the effeminate man. And I get that. Nothing bothers me more than being on a Christian campus watching a bunch of effeminate young men walking around. Uh... And I get the frustration. But we can't then go to the other side and say true masculinity is going to the gym, improving your grip strength, and walking around being a bully. Does that make sense? Um, There's plenty of feminacy there, too. Yeah, yeah, there is. yourself in the mirror and flexing all the time. Shaving your chest to make sure. Uh, yeah. Nothing creepy about that. Uh, so... Um, so there's a sense in which going to the other side ends up just meeting the feminacy in the back door, right? Every time we try to avoid something, a lot of times going the wrong way ends up just doing it again. Um, it's like an institution that really doesn't like Catholics. So they go way so far out of their way to avoid Catholicism, they end up acting like Catholics by having a bunch of Catholic art on their campus. Things like that. 
I'm just, uh, you're, not, you're not talking about anything abstract. No, there's no, I don't know, I'm, this is purely abstract. Purely abstract, right. Uh, but things like that happen. And yeah. it happens to, you know, it happens to good people who are, who really have something that they don't like that's a good thing not to like. But in their swing to get away from it, they just end up being like them. So, these are good things to remember, right? Uh, that although there is a sense in which you do want to um, express your sex, um, even in how you act and in your body, going so far to the nth degree of it can end up just uh, being a major problem as well. So then we come to personal attributes. How is it that the Holy Spirit has personal attributes? Um, if we look at John 14, with me for a minute, John 14, 26. This is Christ speaking of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice the Trinity uh, speaking here. Uh, there's a incredible... Um, incredible view of the Trinity that is just uh, beautiful in these passages. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Look at how you have the Trinity going on here. Uh, the Father is sending the Holy Spirit. So the Father is not the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit is coming in the, in the name of the Son. Um, and the Son is speaking, so the Holy Spirit is not the Son. Does that make sense? He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Okay? So you have this beautiful picture of it. Um, okay, now where is the part that I wanted to show you? Oh, there it is. So uh, the teaching, okay? The Son is not teaching, the Spirit is teaching. Okay. And as a teacher, this shows that there is an intelligence going on. The Holy Spirit is not a means by which um, information is sent, as if the Holy Spirit is a cell phone. Does that make sense? Your cell phone does not have intelligence. Your cell phone uh, shows what is being sent to you by someone who is intelligent. Does that make sense? Or... To an extent, anyway. It depends on the person. <laughs> so you don't you don't get a text from you know from someone and go, wow, this this phone is so smart. But we call it a smartphone, right? But the phone is not smart. It's just doing a job of a machine. Um, and so when we're looking at teaching, what we're finding is that the Holy Spirit isn't something that's just being used for communication. He is doing the intelligent work of teaching. So in your first blank there, uh, from John 14, 26, we understand that one attribute of being a person is having intelligence. Independent intelligence. So we see there's some independence here, obviously. He's not the son and he is not the father. But he is a person that is able to teach. He has intelligence. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. 
1 Corinthians 12, 11. We're going to hit this a lot harder later on in our study. But for now, uh, it is the Spirit that is giving people spiritual gifts. But the one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each, each one individually, just as he wills. One thing that we... There's two dangers that I see a lot of people getting into. People that don't understand covenant well uh, might begin to think that when Christ says, uh, not my will, but your will be done. Or when Christ says, the Holy Spirit will say all things that he has been told to say to you. You might come to think that the Son and the Spirit have no will at all of their own. Um, if you don't understand covenant, you might come to believe that they don't have a will. But what they're demonstrating is they are willing to remain faithful to the covenant. For the Holy Spirit to, to say all or to teach all the things that the Father has told him to teach is a willful act of staying faithful to the covenant that was agreed to before the foundation of the world. For, for the Son to say all the things that the Father has told him to say is a willful act, staying faithful to the covenant. You take covenant out. If you don't understand covenant, you're going to be, one, you're going to be so confused as you go through your scriptures. You're going to be confused when you get to John 3.16 and then keep reading to John 6. You're going to have no idea what to believe anymore because you don't understand the covenant work of your God. So, what we see here is the Holy Spirit has a will of his own, as any person would. And who is it up to concerning the gifts you have? I mean, when you think, I mean, we go to, uh, to the service today, we're going to see a lot of gifts displayed. We're going to see people playing music. We're going to see um, Andrew preaching the gospel. These are gifts. Whose will was it for them to have these particular gifts? Spirit. Holy Spirit. Not the Father. Not the Son. It was the Holy Spirit's will for you to have that particular gift. That's what the Bible says. Um, in Ephesians 4.30... Trying to stay on task. What was the previous blank? I'm sorry. The previous blank was will. That's a will. I'm sorry. Yes. It's the. It's the short. It's the smallest blank of them. So. It's, I try to make the blanks in proportionate to the size of the word, but sometimes I'm not very good at it. Because I know. I know. Who knows how elaborate your writing is. Some of you. <laughs> My Bible does not want me to turn to Ephesians. Okay, there it is. Ephesians 4.30. says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Then it goes on to talk about your bitterness and your wrath and your anger and your clamoring your slander, and all that malice 
that you have stored up in your heart is that which grieves the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is grieved. That means he's feeling emotions. Now don't get, uh, don't overextend how we mimic our God. Um, the Holy Spirit is not emotional the way we are emotional, where we have no control over our emotions. The Holy Spirit is not willful as we are willful, in which we can't hardly ever control what we feel willful about because of our emotions. Right? Um, it is interesting how closely tied to your emotional state that your willful state is tied, which tells us where your intelligence is tied, right? Uh, one thing I tell my students in my philosophy class, it's not that you don't believe because Christianity doesn't make sense or it's illogical. There's been men that are way more intelligent than any of us in the room that have demonstrated the reasonableness of Christianity and how it all is possible, and how just as impossible it is if you take the stand that God doesn't exist. It's all impossible. And there's plenty of intelligence out there. The question is, your emotional state and willful state that are so tied together that your disbelief has almost nothing to do with whether an argument is intelligent or not has to do with your anger <coughs> for the God you claim doesn't exist. And it is an anger. It's not, a, it's not neutral. It's not, I don't care. Um, it is an anger. Which, is, which makes that will strong. Right? Against the Lord. It's why in Romans 1, uh, 118, it talks about suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. You suppress the truth not out of stupidity. There is a lot of sophisticated suppression. It's tied up in that emotional, willful state. And that's not how the Holy Spirit is. So although the Holy Spirit has emotions and a will and intelligence, it's not exactly like ours. Don't get that wrong. All right. And so also, the Holy Spirit has personal work. He works personally in us. Um, it's not a general work. Um, particular atonement is important to me because, and this is the idea that Christ died for particular people. Um, it's not important to me because it logically makes sense with the rest of TULIP, with the rest of the five points of Calvinism. Although it does. You really can't have total depravity and deny any of the other four and be logical. You lose your logical stance. And a lot of people are willing to believe in total depravity because they have eyes <laughs> and have ears and they watch the news. But... Uh, if you really want to hold to it, the rest of the four have got to go together, logically. But that's not why I believe it. That's uh, not the main reason. <laughs> the main reason is God never acts in a general manner. 
he is always personal because he is ultimate personality. He works personally. He never does anything and throws it out there and says, hey, somebody catch. I've just done a work. He works for the personal, uh, in the personal way you would work for someone you know. And this is how he works in us, even the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, 26. Got to go through this quick. Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That is a personal work. The Holy Spirit, and on your blank there, you can put intercedes for you. And in the parentheses over there, this is, a, this is intimacy. This is intimacy. The Holy Spirit doesn't have a general groaning for, his, for Christians that they can tap into when they don't know how to pray. He didn't send out a signal out there and say, hey, you know, catch on to that for whoever wants it. He is listening to you pray. He is involved in your life and knows what you need to the point where when you don't even know how to pray or you're praying incorrectly, he is groaning for you. He's groaning for you, personally. He doesn't, it's not a general thing for Christians. It is a personal, intimate groaning just for you. And secondly, if we look at John 16, 13, as we talked about already, the Holy Spirit teaches you. He teaches you. And in your parentheses there, he is mentoring you. Uh, those of you that have taught for a living, or maybe those of you that have been a student, like me for a living, <laughs> you've been a student too long, uh, you realize there's two kind of teachers. There's a kind of teacher that sends off the information into the general atmosphere and hopes everyone takes the notes and gets the stuff done. And then there's a teacher that says... Uh, please see me in my office. And you go to the office, and they talk to you, and they say, come back again, and you come back again. And you realize what's happening isn't just an interesting conversation, but they're mentoring you. They're willing to meet you, and talk to you, and invite you into their home. That's mentorship. right? The Holy Spirit isn't sending out general teachings, and you just catch on to it, or you may not catch on to it. He is mentoring you. In his teaching. He wants you to be like him. Uh, in John 14, 16. Um, we may not have talked about John 14, 16 particularly yet. Uh, let me read that very quickly. John 14, 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, 
because he abides with you and will be in you. When I teach secular, in a secular school with unsaved students staring at me, and I talk about Christianity, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds like something people with weak minds believe because they just can't handle the real life. And so they need this little weird thing that they keep all telling themselves they believe in. And it sounds dumb. How would it be possible for this amount of human beings to believe in such a thing? And I asked them that. What do you think it would take for thousands of years of people everywhere believing this? Billions of people believing it on a global scale. They look at me, I don't know. And I say, it would take an act of God. That's what it would take. (laughs) And it does. And this is the sad part. The sad part is the ignorance doesn't lie within the believers. The ignorance lies within the unbelievers who don't have the Spirit. The Spirit is a real person that indwells, and that indwelling changes you. It makes you different than you were before. Because it comes down to this. My, uh, my dissertation keeps me uh, sober about this because I am studying a man who wholeheartedly bought into the idea that there is no God and that we should be happy to live in a world and be active in a world. And even though you understand that this doesn't mean anything, that what you're doing has no, has no meaning whatsoever, eventually the star that we're revolving around will supernova and then nothing matters. Your existence doesn't matter. Whatever you did on this earth doesn't matter. The fact that you die and nothing happens is proof that nothing matters. You just keep on going and that what he calls that existential angst will bother you for a little bit but if you just calm it down and just get back to work and do what you're supposed to do, do what you're supposed to do, do what you're supposed to do so you can die and not think about it. That's his answer. The fact that he was a Nazi sympathizer doesn't matter. It would make sense. Because in the end, there is no right and wrong. That's just a feeling people have. It's the way people control each other. If one person wants to dominate another group of people, then you do it. That is logical. And if you want to say, I don't believe in God, that is what you must believe if you want to be a rational human being. It's dark. What if reality really is that there is a triune God and the way he exposes reality to us is through the work of a person called the Holy Spirit? What if that's reality? The Holy Spirit, your next blank there, is dwells in you. Because that word there has to do with being an advocate. Your advocate. 
quickly tell this quick story. Um, a few years ago, my mother, my mother, in her 70s, was accused of something she didn't do. Actually, it'd be impossible for her to do, but she was accused of it, and they were taking her to court over it. And as a woman in her 70s, she really didn't know what to do. Uh, the police were trying to get her to take some kind of uh, truth test, what do they call that? Polygraph. And uh, the, police, the police are her friend, but sometimes they just want to close a case and they don't care how insane it is. And polygraphs often help them close that case, whether there's truth or not. And so she was lost. Um, at that age, you know, they've never had any kind of legal troubles in their lives. And they had no idea what to do. Um, and uh, it, it broke them. Um, especially what she was being accused of. And it looked like things were going to get really ugly. And they found a lawyer who was an advocate for them. And it cost money, but that man understood how this works. That man understood how the people accusing him were actually people that were trying to get money out of the church, and they found this as the way to do it. And you had someone that understood the law so well and had been involved in these things so well that he was able to crush that whole, that whole case. But if they didn't have him, they don't know anything about the law. They were going to take a polygraph test. Who knows what that would have said? The poor woman was so scared. They had no one to turn to and this man who understood the law save them. That is the picture that this word is telling us. There's an advocate. We had nowhere to turn. We look at the world, and without God, there is no meaning. There is nothing. There is a, there is a being out there called Satan that loves it when we believe there's no hope, that loves it when we convince ourselves there is no God that is trying to lead us down the path that feels the best for us so he can get us to hell as soon as he can. And we have an advocate. A person. The Holy Spirit. So why does this matter? Very quickly to end uh, our lesson today. Because the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force, and because of what we just learned, we can understand that the Holy Spirit loves us. First of all, the Holy Spirit loves you. Isn't that a strange thing to think? But he doesn't just love us in a general way. He loves us, the first blank there is personally. He loves you personally. The Holy Spirit loves us Selflessly. This doesn't improve God's situation for us to exist. 
the Trinity was celebrating itself and glorifying itself perfectly with full satisfaction between the uh, persons of the Trinity. It is a mystery why we exist. And even though we have eternity to keep improving our glory to God, it will never be as perfect as his own glory for himself. He does it selflessly. And the Holy Spirit loves us eternally. Without end. He abides with you, according to John 14, forever. Never-ending love. Never-ending bond that he made with us. And that should be exciting to us, understanding the Holy Spirit as a person. And maybe make us uh, more excited about uh, what is to come. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about his work in the Old Testament. The week after that, his work in the New Testament. And what that means to us. It's very kind of exciting. Well, Well, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you uh, for, your, for the way you have sent him and uh, given him uh, the task for uh, illuminating our minds, the way he loves us with such great selflessness and with such great uh, eagerness to do so, Lord. We thank you for that. We pray for your blessing over this time we have, even in the service, as we listen to uh, Andrew bring the word that your spirit would work deeply in our hearts with great person, uh, personalness with us, Lord. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.